The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hi, I'm Allison Frankel, and this is On the Case. And they had a plan, a clear plan, we know this from the public, what's publicly available, to expand and control the civilian market for assault rifles. And their approach, and we allege this in our complaint, is to attract buyers by extolling the militaristic and assaultive qualities of their AR-15s. Manufacturers are insulated from negligent entrustment unless they have that personal dealing or they acquire some information. I mean, it's conceivable that in some situation that a manufacturer might know that the product it puts on its truck is destined to a person who is likely to use it to cause harm. It's, that's possible. It has not been pleaded this case. Welcome to our second episode of On the Case, the Reuters podcast where we go deep on legal issues. My guest today is Larry Keene, the top lawyer for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Hi, Larry. Hi, Allison. How are you? Good. So glad you could be here today. Larry's group is the trade association for gun makers and sellers. And his members are the beneficiaries of a protection that no other major American industry enjoys. Congress and state legislators have passed laws shielding them, for the most part, from civil lawsuits. Those shield laws have made it nearly impossible for shooting victims or their survivors to hold gun makers and sellers responsible. Victims and gun control advocates are still trying to find ways around the laws, and we're going to talk today about a suit by Sandy Hook families that could make a big difference in these laws. But our big question of the day is this. Is America safer because of laws shielding the gun industry from lawsuits? Before you answer, Larry, I'm just going to throw out some statistics for context. There have been, on average... 30 mass killings a year since 2006 in this country. This is according to uh, research by some leading academics at Northeastern. We all know the horror role, Aurora, Sandy Hook, the Pulse nightclub, San Bernardino, Las Vegas, Parkland, Jacksonville. More than 900 people have died in mass shootings since 2009. More than 200 of the victims have been children. From the headlines... It sure seems that things have gotten worse since gun shield laws took effect. Larry, I think you have a different view. Well, Allison, I I think it's important for uh, your audience to understand that crime is actually down in the United States considerably uh, since its peak in the early 1990s. Although the public perceives that crime is up, the reality is, fortunately, that crime is is much, much lower. And, uh, you know, the... The preemption uh, law that uh, you mentioned uh, has nothing to do with, uh, or is you know certainly not the cause of, or in any way related to some of these terrible incidents that we've seen uh, in the recent past. Okay, let's get into why there is a preemption law, or as as it's also known, a shield law for gun makers and sellers. You joined the firearms trade group in about 2000. Tell me a little bit about what was happening in the 1990s with litigation against gun makers and gun sellers. 
Sure. Well, there, you know, there have been attempts to sue uh, firearms manufacturers going back to the 70s, the 80s. There was a wave of litigation uh, in, the, in the mid to late 1990s. First, there were some private lawsuits. And then beginning in 1998, there were uh, several dozen lawsuits by major cities um, against handgun manufacturers and distributors in the United States, attempting to blame those manufacturers for uh, the cost the cities incurred in dealing with the, you know, the terrible problem of gun violence in those cities. One question I have is, our first stop for controlling guns in cities should be legislation, right? Why do you think cities took this alternate approach of trying to sue to reduce the number of, of weapons on the streets? They were suing the industry to impose policies that they were not able to get passed either in Congress or through state legislatures. So they turned to the courts uh, and pursued uh, what we consider to be, and Congress agreed, were frivolous lawsuits, baseless lawsuits that were distorting tort law to advance policy agendas and to try to impose through settlements or in court orders, uh, you know, policy choices that the legislature had rejected. So... How big a threat were these suits to the industry? They were an existential threat to the existence of the firearms industry. And, and by association, it was a threat to the um, health of the Second Amendment in the United States. These cities were all each individually asking for multiple billions of dollars um, in each of the cases. A single one of those city lawsuits, if it had been successful it, uh, um, would have bankrupted and shuttered the entire firearms industry. So it was uh, absolutely an existential threat to the existence of the industry. And, and a lot of consequences would have flown from that. How could, how could one case end up threatening the whole industry? Wouldn't the company just be able to appeal if the lawsuits really were a big stretch of, uh, of, of tort law theories? Well, actually, uh, the amounts that were being asked for were so massive, and it's a relatively small industry. So the judgments would have been so large that the companies actually would not have been able to afford to post the bond to appeal the cases. Uh, and a lot of the threat, it, it, you know, in the cases was the massive legal costs that were being imposed upon these small companies to defend themselves. Many of the companies, you know, had to had to pay their defense by themselves. Insurance companies denied coverage and things like that. So uh, between the defense cost and the, and the litigation was designed to try to cause the industry to knuckle under because of the defense costs uh, and submit to the settlement, uh, which would have imposed through the terms of the settlement, the very policy choices um, that they were trying to pursue through the litigation that they couldn't get passed in legislation. And how, how did the industry do in these cases? Many other cases were dismissed on uh, motions for failure to state a claim. And the courts agreed that the theories being pursued in the case, which is primarily, if not exclusively, uh, a theory that uh, a public nuisance, that somehow the, the legal and lawful sale of firearms was creating a public nuisance. The courts rejected those legal theories, said that there was not a legitimate uh, claim under public nuisance, and the cases were thrown out, and those cases were um, virtually all upheld on appeal. The industry was doing really well in court, 
but at the same time, you guys were pressing for for some laws to protect you as well, first in the states. Tell me about those efforts and tell me about why gun manufacturers felt that they needed laws to shield them from lawsuits despite their success in court. Well, because you could always continue to see new cases filed, more cases filed. I mean, I mean, theoretically, every city, every municipality in the United States could have filed a lawsuit against the industry. So it would have you know, been crushing defense costs. And again, any one of these major cities had prevailed, it would have bankrupted the industry. And many state legislatures proactively came forward uh, and introduced legislation to stop these lawsuits. So I think there's about 36 states passed some form of preemption legislation to prevent municipalities, which are creatures of the state, from filing these public nuisance lawsuits against the industry. Is it really realistic to to call this litigation threat an existential threat to the industry? You know, there's all kinds of ways that companies can reorganize and cabin off liability. Why were these suits considered such a dire threat? This theory, this, this distortion of tort law had taken root, it would have had a devastating impact uh, against uh, on the industry, and it would have bankrupted the industry. Because even if you came out of bankruptcy, you could get sued the next day by the next city. So uh, it was absolutely an existential threat to the existence of the industry. It would have uh, really uh, effectively ended the Second Amendment, would have prevented the United States from being able to defend itself from the military because these companies manufacture those products used by the military and by law enforcement agencies all across the United States. And, and is that the message that, that you guys express to state legislatures? Yes. I mean, all of the, all of the above. And they agreed. Uh, and these laws at the state level passed overwhelmingly. And the, the federal statute passed overwhelmingly as well. Okay, let's get to the federal statute. You've got laws in more than 30 states that are shielding gun makers, and I, I assume gun sellers as well, correct? Federally licensed firearms uh, manufacturers, distributors, and retailers, yes. Okay. So you've got the laws in, in all of these states protecting you. The industry continued to press for federal legislation, though. Why did you also need federal protection? Because we wanted to stop this uh, very dangerous a distortion of the tort law um, that represented a, a threat to our industry. And there was a lot of support within the general business community because this legal theory of had it taken root against uh, the firearms industry would not have just stayed contained against the firearms industry and other manufacturers would have been facing similar lawsuits for selling a legal product, a non-defective product that was subsequently used by third parties over whom you have no control to cause harm. Okay, we're going to come back to that question about whether the shield for the gun industry is different from protections for other industries. But I just want to talk about this 2005 law, which is officially called the Protection for Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and ask you to kind of break down what kind of suits PLACA bars and what kind of suits are still allowed under PLACA? So the, the premise 
or the, the principle of the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act was that it, it is not a legitimate legal theory under traditional tort law principles to be able to sue a manufacturer or a product seller when they sell a legal, non-defective product in a lawful manner, and then that product is uh, subsequently criminally misused by some third party. Third parties you know, who criminally misuse a product are the responsible entity, but you can't sue a manufacturer for the criminal misuse of, of a product that was non-defective and lawfully sold. So it, it wasn't any special protection. It just protected traditional tort law principles and did not allow uh, this, this um, rogue nascent theory to develop. There are still, it is not, as we would hear all the time, mischaracterizes blanket immunity. It was absolutely not that. Uh, you can still sue for breach of contract, breach of warranty, product liability claims are still legitimate. Illegal sales would still be uh, legitimate. Negligent entrustment would still be permissible. Lay out in layman's terms what negligent entrustment means. It sounds so legal. It's such an intimidating phrase. <laughs> negligent entrustment would be, for example, you know, somebody is intoxicated and you know they're intoxicated and you give them the keys to your car and they go out and drive drunk and hurt themselves or somebody else. That would be sort of a textbook example of negligent entrustment. Uh, or somebody comes into your store, uh, you know, you're a pharmacist and they're distraught and you sell them powerful drugs. Or even in the, in the case of, of firearms, if you walk into a firearms retailer and the person is distraught and um, clearly intoxicated, let's say, and the dealer, knowing and seeing that the person is intoxicated, still sells them the gun and they go out and misuse it and hurt somebody, um, that's negligent entrustment. You talked about how there's a misperception that there's special immunity for the gun industry. I'm just going to throw out some examples of, of other industries that produce legal products that can be used for harm. And, and I'm curious to hear you explain why they're not analogous to, to guns. Like why, for instance, there's no similar protection from lawsuits for tobacco products, also legal, also potentially health destroying. Right. So we would hear that uh, analogy all the time. And, and the plaintiff's lawyers in the municipal lawsuits, um, the private lawyers, the trial lawyers were chiefly law firms that had been involved in tobacco litigation uh, against the tobacco industry. The difference between litigation against tobacco and the firearms industry is that tobacco, when used as intended, causes harm. Firearms, when used as intended, save lives or are used for legitimate purposes like hunting and target shooting and self-protection or collecting. So that's a major distinction. And the firearms are protected by the Second Amendment and tobacco is not. So that analogy just doesn't hold any water. And how about alcohol? You mentioned before that um, if someone, a bartender or a catering hall, provides alcohol to someone who is already inebriated, they can face liability. 
Sure. And so if you're a bartender or a bar and you serve somebody who's intoxicated and they go out uh, and drive a car and hurt somebody, the bar can be sued. But you couldn't sue the brewery or the distillery. You wouldn't sue Budweiser in that case. And, and so you wouldn't sue a manufacturer of firearm who sells it to a distributor legally, who then sells it to a retailer, who then sells it to a consumer. So you're saying basically the chain ends in the same place when it comes to holding people responsible for selling alcohol to people they shouldn't be selling to. These gun laws similarly penalize people for selling firearms to people who obviously should not have weapons in their hands. Right. So if a a retailer, for example, were to sell uh, a handgun to somebody under the age of 21, uh, which is prohibited under federal law, they could be sued. If they sold a gun to somebody who was intoxicated, uh, they could be sued under the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. But you couldn't sue the manufacturer or the distributor who are far removed from that transaction and had no knowledge of what was taking place and no ability. Okay, I'm going to hit you with your with with I think the toughest comparison now, which is opioids. So opioids, like guns, uh, were legally produced, legally sold, and yet now we have all of these uh, states and and cities and municipalities, even President Trump is talking about the federal government suing pharmaceutical companies for producing opioids because they ended up, these legal products ended up being misused and costing lives. Why is that different? Well, I'm not going to comment on ongoing litigation. I mean, maybe those are legitimate theories. Maybe they're not. Um, You know, but I think the comparison would be saying if the doctor is overprescribing opioids and people are getting addicted, but those, those medicines have a legitimate purpose if properly used and properly prescribed. But I, so, I, you know, that's ongoing litigation and the courts will decide that. But in the case of the firearms industry, you know, these lawsuits were, were as I said earlier, designed and intended to compel policy choices that the legislature wouldn't pass. How effective, broadly speaking, have the state and federal um, immunity laws been in averting lawsuits against gun makers and sellers? I mean, I think by and large, the statute is doing exactly what Congress intended. Um, it, you generally don't see lawsuits against manufacturers. And we have seen lawsuits against retailers where the courts allowed the case to go forward under a theory that it was a bad illegal sale, which I mentioned earlier is not protected, or or, that lawsuit's not prevented under the statute, or negligent entrustment cases against retailers. So I think by and large, uh, the statute is working as as Congress intended it. One of the provisions in, uh, in some of the state statutes is very unusual in American litigation. There's a, a fee-shifting um, provision that means that if you, if you file a suit against a, a firearms company and you lose, the plaintiff is on the hook for the defense costs. And that, that provision really came home in a case um, that was brought by 
the mom and stepfather of a young woman who was shot and killed in the movie theater massacre in Aurora, uh, Colorado. She sued in Colorado and didn't even want money damages. The mom and, and stepdad were just looking for an injunction that would force internet retailers to take a closer look at who they were they were selling ammunition and, and other weaponry to. So they not only lost the case right away, but they got hit with um, a bill of more than $200,000 for, for defense costs. Larry, how do you think that that is a fair result for people who lost their child in a mass shooting? Well, obviously, it's tragic what occurred there. Um, and as we all know, the individual who committed that atrocity was a severely uh, dangerously mentally Ill individual. And we can all agree he should never uh, been able to have access to firearms. But the statute in Colorado was very clear uh, that you can't sue the company for legally selling products. And while it's not uh, common, there are many statutes that include these fee-shifting provisions. And it's meant by the legislature when it's done, and it's been done in a number of these state uh, laws we talked about, um, to be a disincentive for people to pursue a baseless, frivolous litigation. They took on that risk knowingly. And then when the case was dismissed properly by the court, uh, the defendants in that case, who should never had to have um, been subjected to those defense costs in that litigation, were entitled to have their attorney's fees paid because the case was baseless. Plaintiff's lawyers would certainly argue that, that the way the, the law gets developed in America is by plaintiffs pursuing novel legal theories. And, and our system is that each side bears its own costs when uh, there is a lawsuit, even if it's pursuing novel legal theories. Uh, the, the Aurora outcome is certainly uh, contrary to that um, general American system. Tell me why it's okay. Yeah, those are policy choices for the legislature. The legislature gets to decide what the law is. And it's perfectly within the prerogative of the legislature to have a fee-shifting provision in a statute where they want to create a disincentive for pursuing what the legislature has decided is not a valid legal theory. So while it's not typical, it's not unheard of, and it's certainly within the prerogative of the legislature. Okay, let's, let's move on to... Um to a case that, that we alluded to before, and, and you, you talked before about one of the theories in this case. This is a case brought by relatives of children and a teacher killed in the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. And I should point out that your office is actually in Newtown, right? Uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation is headquartered in uh, Newtown, Connecticut. That's correct. Yeah. You know, and this this case, this case certainly, this incident certainly hit hit close to home. So the lawyers, yeah, very, very close to home, yes. Yeah, the lawyers in the Sandy Hook case came up with a theory that the gunmaker may be responsible under this negligent entrustment idea we talked about for wrongly allowing a semi-automatic rifle to fall into the hands of the Sandy Hook shooter. 
and their, their lawyers argued the case at the, the Connecticut Supreme Court last November. What's different about this case? Why is the industry reportedly concerned um, that this case could weaken the laws that, uh, that exist right now? So they're, they're pursuing uh, this negligent entrustment theory, which the trial court dismissed, saying that the facts of the case, which are, which are tragic and touch very close to home, for the National Shooting Sports Foundation being in the community uh, is it was not valid under Connecticut common law and also not valid under the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act because the facts in the case are that, that Remington, which owns Bushmaster, manufactured the rifle, which was legal to own and possess in Connecticut, was not defective uh, and was lawfully sold by Remington to a distributor in Massachusetts. The distributor in Massachusetts legally sold that product to a retailer in Connecticut. The retailer in Connecticut sold it to uh, Mrs. Lanza legally over a year before the tragedy. And the individual, her son, whose name I won't use, committed the atrocity after stealing the firearm. Um, and so there was no negligent entrustment uh, at all by the retailer and certainly not by Remington or the distributor. As I described before, I mean, you know, the person doing the entrusting has to have knowledge um, of the dangerousness of giving that product or chattel to the individual to whom they entrusted, that they would be you know, reasonably likely to use it in a dangerous manner. So as I understand the theory, as as the plaintiff's lawyers argued it at the Connecticut Supreme Court, their lawyers contend that gun makers are somehow um, negligently entrusting these uh, military style weapons through their marketing should have been aware that unstable individuals would be enticed by the marketing and, well, yeah, and so they essentially abandoned the negligent entrustment theory at oral argument and came up with this new theory that somehow protected First Amendment speech could give rise um, to a lawsuit against the manufacturer. Let's say um, the individual Sandy Hook had taken his mother's Mustang uh, and drove it into the schoolyard and ran over the children and killed them that way. That'd be like saying that you could sue Ford for their advertising of Mustangs because of something that was in the commercial. Um, I mean, it's really, that argument just shows how weak their case is, frankly, huh. that somehow um, advertising, they have no evidence anyone ever, that anybody saw or was influenced by, somehow caused this person who's mentally disturbed to commit this act. Millions of those products have been sold to law-abiding Americans who didn't go out and commit a crime. So the notion that somehow Remington's protected First Amendment speech, advertising a legal non-defective product, caused that individual to commit that heinous, heinous crime, you know, just, I mean, it's absurd. And uh, the case is, we don't even think the case is at all a close call. And yet... 
<laughs> the, the Connecticut justices have been uh, have been looking at it since since November. Does that make you worried? That's you know that's uh, that's ten months. That's a long look for a case that's not a close call. No, I mean appellate courts uh, have a heavy workload, uh, and it can take. You know, I've seen appeals take over a year to be decided in busy courts. So, you know, but but they were obviously interested in the outcome of the case because uh, if the Connecticut Supreme Court were to decide somehow um, a, a real stretch of tort law that that this case could proceed under under the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. Um, you know, we would be very concerned because it could open up a wave of a new wave of frivolous lawsuits that say somehow advertising, you know, caused somebody to commit uh, this atrocious act. Now, they would have to go back to the trial court and try to prove that with actual evidence, of which they have none, because there was extensive discovery in the case before it was dismissed. So, you know, I don't believe they would prevail on that case, even uh, were the Connecticut Supreme Court to allow them to go forward to a trial, which we think would be inappropriate because the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act commands that the case uh, be dismissed um, and it cannot be maintained. And we think the facts fit very squarely under the statute. It is a legal, lawfully sold, non-defective product uh, that was subsequently criminally misused by a deranged person to commit harm. Remington, no manufacturer of any product in that sort of scenario is legally responsible for that person's actions. Well, like I said, the the, the Supreme Court is giving it a hard look. So we'll have to see if... Uh, and they're doing their job, and, and we're confident that they will rule the correct way because it's not, under law, it's not a close call. It really isn't. Larry, I have one more question for you on the Sandy Hook case. You mentioned the shooter's mother, Nancy Lanza, who bought the rifle that was used in the massacre. What about claims against people like her who allow weapons to get into the hands of killers? You know, there could be a theory against Mrs. Lanza that she negligently entrusted or negligently stored the firearms in the house, allowing him to have access. Is that a potential line of, of liability for, you know, whoever sold weapons to, to other mass shooters? It, it, you know, do, do we then get into litigation over how unstable was the shooter at the time he or she purchased the weapon? So let's say a different fact pattern. Let's say a person comes into a licensed dealer and they're inebriated, they're drunk. Mm-hmm. You can smell alcohol on the breath. Or they're deranged um, and clearly um, not in their right mind and you sell them a gun and then they go and hurt somebody, that would be a negligent entrustment and that person, that retailer could be sued, whether it's a firearms retailer or a hardware store who sold somebody a drill who then went out and used it and hurt somebody. That's negligent entrustment. Uh, Or the bartender who, um, you know, serves somebody or, you know, somebody, you know, is intoxicated and fall down drunk and you give them the keys to your car. So yeah, the, you know, Mrs. Lanza could have been sued, um, but you can't sue the manufacturer who's far removed from the transaction. We're going to close the interview by going back to the question that, that I asked at the beginning. In, in this country, for good or bad, we rely on private litigation to 
to help us identify and avert danger, whether whether we're talking about trucks with exploding gas tanks or asbestos causing mesothelioma or drugs that have uh, terrible side effects or can be misused to fatal effect. I think we all agree that mass shootings are a problem. Sum up for me, Larry, why you think that is a problem that private litigation can't solve. Well, private litigation can't solve the problem that we have in this country um, with our mental health system. That, to us, in the industry seems to be at the root cause of so many of these tragedies or, or the police not acting on information or the FBI not acting on information in the case of Parkland. But the legislature has a role to play as well as the courts, and the legislature gets to decide what the law is. Uh, and the legislature could can put guide rails on, on the court system about what cases are legitimate in what cases or not. That's the democratic process. So while you know the law is always evolving uh, and changing, the legislature can still constrain um, how much it's allowed to change. America is safer today because fortunately, crime is going down in the United States. That's a good thing. Um, any shooting, uh, particularly mass shootings, are horrible, tragic events. Fortunately, uh, they are not increasing. Um, they come in inexplicable clusters, uh, and no one quite knows why that's the case. Uh, but while crime is going down and America is getting safer, the number of firearms and civilian possession in the United States by law-abiding citizens ex exercising their Second Amendment rights has never been higher. There's never been more firearms in the hands of law-abiding citizens in the United States than there are today, and yet crime continues to go down. And the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act doesn't cause anyone to misuse a product. It only stops a, a distortion of traditional tort law principles, and it's entirely appropriate for the legislature uh, to pass such statutes. Okay. I think that is a great place to end. Thank you so much sure. for being here and, and answering <laughs> answering some, some, some tough questions. Uh, I really appreciate it. On the Case is a podcast by Reuters. If you'd like to hear more, visit Reuters.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Frankel.